Coming up on the Van Maren Show, we're going to be talking to Marjorie Dannenfelser, the president of America's most powerful political pro-life organization, the Susan B. Anthony List, to talk about Donald Trump, the upcoming election, the Supreme Court vacancy, and more. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Marjorie Dannenfelser, who is the president of the Susan B. Anthony List. Many of you have probably heard of the organization because it is one of the most powerful pro-life organizations in Washington, D.C., with almost constant access to the White House. In fact, we were supposed to do this interview last week, but Marjorie had to cancel the interview at the last minute because she was on the phone with President Donald Trump to discuss the vacancy on the Supreme Court left by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Over the last three election cycles, SBA List and its Super PAC Women Speak Out have reached more than 4.6 million voters by visiting voters at their homes to win a pro-life White House and secure a pro-life majority in the U.S. Senate. In January 2020, Dannenfels was named the national co-chair of the Pro-Life Voices for Trump Coalition, a role she held during the 2016 campaign after securing four groundbreaking pro-life commitments from the then nominee. She is the author of Life is winning inside the fight for unborn children and their mothers, which we'll be discussing. She has been published widely, including in Time Magazine, The Washington Post, National Review, and has been profiled by New York Magazine, The Telegraph, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. She serves on the board of Alliance Defending Freedom on the Life Perspectives Task Force and was appointed to the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission by Senate Leader McConnell. She was named one of Political Magazine's Top 50 Influencers of 2018, Washington Examiner's Top 10 Political Women on the Move, Newsmax's Top 25 most influential Republican women, and Newsweek's top 10 leaders of the Christian right. An alumni of Duke University, she and her husband Marty live in Arlington, Virginia, and have five children. I've long admired her work, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, which I hope that you'll enjoy as much as I did. All right. Well, I guess just to start off before we get into the book, these are uh, very exciting times in Washington, D.C. So I guess I'd like uh, first to just hear your thoughts on Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court vacancy and whether or not you think she'll be confirmed. Um, well, you know, with uh, with a lot of a lot of work, a little bit of grace, <laughs> um, I think a really solid nominee and um, and some unexpected unity in this Senate. Senator uh, crowd and on the Republican side, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. People love to say that I'm optimistic, but I know the reality about uh, Collins and Murkowski. Um, it, this is not um, we're not in the same situation that we were um, uh, in the um, when when we could only lose a, a, a couple. You know, we could lose both of them, and we could still win because Pence mm. can, uh, and we could lose even Romney, and Pence yeah. could still cast that tie-breaking vote. So um, I think we're in good shape. One of the, I, I, it's interesting you brought up Romney because one of the reasons I found your book Life is Winning so interesting is because finally as, as somebody um, who works in the pro-life movement I got the sort of inside story on a lot of these candidates and, and the extent to which they were willing to work with the pro-life movement and you say that uh, Mitt Romney did convert to the pro-life position that you believed his conversion was genuine um, but that especially because of the Todd Akin comments he ran as far as he could from the pro-life movement so how how reliable does the pro-life movement see Mitt Romney in terms of will he act from personal pro-life conviction on this or will he be you know, making political calculations? 
That's a really great question. And also, I heard myself say, I think we're in good shape. And that terrified me. Because that's exactly what we said moving into the Kavanaugh hearings. We didn't see some of the dirt they had coming. We didn't, we underestimated what they would make up and the insanity. Well, they definitely will try that here. Their heads will be spinning in a fashion that makes the other, the other hearings, the Kavanaugh hearings look look like uh, like just a gentle Thanksgiving dinner. So I think, yes, while, it, while right now is a calm before the storm and there aren't obvious things and she's the whole package and all that stuff. And then you have people, of course, like Romney. So if we lost Collins and Murkowski and then there's Romney sitting in that position, he loves and savors so much, sort of like uh, uh, Senator Flake used to relish that position of everyone waiting to see what he's doing. I mean, he's indicated very positively in terms of uh, how he might, uh, how he might vote, but you, but you really never know. And I think, um, it, you know, what's interesting until you ask that question, I had not thought in my mind about the difference in the president's conversion on this and mm-hmm. Senator Romney's conversion on this. And I think it's really interesting to think about. I think Romney would do what you describe. Look on both sides, really, you know, look at all the, all the pieces. How does this elevate him? Um, he generally right. dislikes the president. How does this build a case against the president? How does this undermine his case against the president um, when he allies with him? Is that you know, so? Right. All those calculations. The president, in his own conversion, um, fell hard when he fell. He absolutely committed. And, you know, for example, he, he was, uh, when he went from the primary to the general, he became more vocal, more. Uh, more trying to clarify him against the mm-hmm. opponent, Clinton. So I think um, I think it's just an interesting dichotomy, and I think it does speak to where the president is nominating this ideal candidate, um, and then Romney, who we're still kind of wondering, I hope he's okay. That says a lot. Yeah. You know, one of the, the most fascinating aspects of your book, uh, which I think it, it clarified a lot of things for me, and I, and I think that anybody who reads it, and I do encourage everybody to read it, would also uh, find it really helpful because I've heard uh, from a lot of my friends in the pro-life movement, uh, basically every, every, all of them you would know well, you know, Jill Stanek, Andy Moore, I've, I've had these conversations with them all the time, and, and they kept on saying, you know, the most pro-life uh, president, and, and I I would always push back a little bit against that because I was always a, a personal George W. Bush fan. Um, I just, I've, I've always loved him. I will defend him for, for uh, to those who say, yeah, but what about here and what about there? Um, and I love the fact that in Bush's memoirs, he talks about his pro-life conversion. Like it was a big enough deal that it made it into his presidential autobiography. And it wasn't until I read your book that I realized um, the difference between a president who aggressively campaigns on the abortion issue because he understands the strength strengths uh, that come with the pro-life position, uh, understands that forcing them to defend something the majority of the American public feels as barbarism is actually a plus, that, you know, you're not the the uh, the, the sort of in the tent but off the platform um, 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 way that the rest of them have been treated. So I found that very helpful. When did you sense that this was going to be different? Because you lay out in the book, this was a transactional relationship. If you agreed to these things, you'd back them. You got those commitments. Kellyanne Conway told you to strengthen the letter, which you did when did you realize okay this is actually something different than we thought it would be i think it was and by the way i understand what you mean about bush i think there's that tenderness there mm-hmm. about it it's compelling and it's beautiful yeah. and then also what you're saying about how the president went after in terms of of clarity going from defense 
when no one had gone from defense to offense, he forced that offense on the abortion mm-hmm. issue, which has made an enormous difference. And that is what he did. As I mean, honestly, even before the swearing in, um, when he named the, the vice president as his running mate, and then after we won, um, the work that we did between the election and the swearing in was part of the reason this has been such a, a operationally pro-life administration. The staffing of the administration in a thoroughgoing pro-life fashion um, was an enormous thing. So that was one indication, but not everything. But I have to say, probably, probably, um, um, I think the list was a big deal. And of mm-hmm. course, the list was pre-election. Because yeah. you could look on there and there's no obvious suitor. There's no Harriet Myers. There's no take it from me. It's like you mm-hmm. take a look. That list was a big deal. And then um, the Mexico City policy, which it kind of gets buried in terms of conversation and import, but the impact of not funding international organizations in the promotion and provision of, of abortion and not exporting abortion has had a major majorly big that's a trump word mm-hmm. majorly big impact on um on foreign nations where we formerly were exporting abortion to those countries and what he did is he took it from a 600 million dollar effect to a eight to a um uh multi-billion dollar effect meaning we 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 that much money was on the chopping block if those organizations didn't come to their knees and say that they wouldn't uh export abortion from us to other countries so you know the other time, see, the thing is, it's a cute, like any convert, like you're, I think with him, and this is saying with me, you make the right choice and you go stand in that place. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of things just catch up. Your mm-hmm. heart catches up, your mind catches up and your actions uh, follow that. And so I think with him, it was a gradual, wow, he's doing this Gorsuch right away, Mexico city policy right away, a, a Planned Parenthood um, allowing states to defund Planned Parenthood, where the vice president uh, ca- uh, cast the deciding vote in the in the Senate, going in for that bill signing ceremony with him, all happened in a really short period of time. Mm-hmm. High impact, a lot of little decisions. So one of the things uh, that I've asked multiple people who have talked to Trump, because I'm always curious, is one of the reasons I was so suspicious of, of him and his pro-life credentials, although I thought it was a compliment to the power of the pro-life movement that, that he felt he had to come out as pro-life to begin with, is um, his conversion story always seemed to me to be manufactured because it was just too simple. And for a lot of us, and you say this in your book, right, it was really Pence that, 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 that sort of sealed the deal for most people. And for a lot of the initial things Trump did, like when he was appointing all these administration officials that were phenomenally pro-life, we all suspected Mike Pence is probably behind that. Um, You tell this beautiful story in your book about how Mike Pence and his wife talked about how they told their kids they were going into politics for the babies. Just a beautiful, it was a really beautiful story. I'd never read that before. Um, Do you know why Trump changed his mind behind the scenes. Like when you talk to him, like he has a, a visceral way of describing abortion, but is that Trump's instinct for zeroing in on something that will create maximum m- impact? <laughs> That's or, a really good question, yeah. Or is that, is that like he's visualized abortion and he feels it in his guts? Yeah, um, I think really only God can answer that question. It is really tough. I mean, I've talked to him many times and and the conversations that we have are basically like you just described, Mm -hmm. that visceral reaction to something everyone reacts negatively to, the ripping apart of the baby limb from limb. Mm -hmm. He got that in his brain. He cannot get it out. Mm -hmm. And so in his mind, that's what abortion means. And in reality, he's right. No matter how large the child is, that Mm -hmm. is it. 
So yep. I'd say that's how he sees it. And so, yes, the, he, he, all of him recoils against that. And, uh, and that's a good thing. He's, you know, he, he is, as I, I, I just keep saying that because I, I experienced it myself, his ease in talking about it um, mm. has not necessarily changed that much. And, and I think that's actually a good instinct because think, think about the things sometimes that he is, he, he, with a great ease, he can say a lot of things that aren't necessarily, you know, how you'd hope they would come out, right? Mm -hmm. He's very careful about, he talks, about how he talks about this. In all of his speeches, um, he delivers them beautifully. He doesn't tweet in the middle of the night about, uh, about different aspects of the pro-life issue. He just, he just, he doesn't. And I think it's actually not out of lack of conviction. I think he's decided that he doesn't want to mess it up, mm -hmm. and I, you know, and he, and he has it. When you look at how the Republican Party has transformed, uh, the, the stories that you told in your book about how Bob Dole refused to campaign on the abortion issue when he was running against Clinton in 96 and he had this perfect opportunity uh, to because the pro-life movement had trapped Clinton into vetoing the Partial Birth Abortion Act, which uh, I've read a couple of feminist analyses of that time period, and even they say this was a very clever, very savvy move. And in, in your book, you describe how Clinton knew what you guys were doing to him. Uh, but Clinton understood what you guys were doing to him, and Dole didn't. He wouldn't run on it. In fact, he went wobbly. Um, so how did this? How did the Republican Party transform from Bob Dole, who wouldn't touch it, to, to Bush, who was genuinely pro-life and would at least talk about it, to now having access to the White House? You know, getting a call from Trump on the on the Supreme Court vacancy and things like that. Yeah, I love your I love your description of, you know, Clinton's head is spinning around with how lethal this issue is for him mm. and bob dole is not necessarily noticing and it's because it's like it's it, the buck stopped with him of course but it's the it's the uh you know, consultant class in the background whispering like oh you don't want to say that word you're going to lose the women's vote if you even say the word mm -hmm. anything about it. of course wrong completely wrong and so how did it change from that until where we have it now i the, the commitment and the conviction uh, about the um, the commitment to a strong muscle in the pro-life movement, one that was reliable when it came to elections, uh, where you uh, help your friends and you defeat people who proved not to be friends, mm -hmm. um, was an object lesson that everyone in the country needed to see. Mm -hmm. And the place to do that was in a high, it, it had to be a high-profile lesson, and more than one, and more than one time. It couldn't just be a fluke. So I think the first, so that I tell a series of stories where the muscle. Uh, was beginning to strengthen, and we really took out um, some people who, uh, uh, politically, who should be in the private sector, not in the public sector any longer, because of how poorly they handled the pro-life issue, right. and completely abandoned the babies, having purported to be their friend, or um, in the case of this little-known special election at the time everybody was paying attention to it there's only one election in the country it was a special election a pro-abortion uh liberal across the board republican who we defeated in a primary and no one saw it coming the political apparatus was furious all the republican crowd absolutely furious and who were we to do this you know mm -hmm. so there a series of object lessons like that and then defeating all the democrats who said they were pro-life and voted for obamacare even though there was no statutory prohibition on abortion funding. Mm -hmm. 
that was an enormous one. So then you're looking around, if you're a wobbly Republican and you're sitting in the house, you're like, holy cow, all these guys are gone because of the abortion issue. Dee Dee mm-hmm. up there in New York, defeated because, because what they saw was the muscle of the pro-life movement coming close to what the NRA, what the unions, what the tobacco farmers have. And honestly, shouldn't we? I mean, for babies. Yep. <laughs> we should. Yeah. So, so that is, is how, it, and then, and then the next step was to take that 20 week, five month pain capable bill and put it at the center of some Senate elections and do some statewide door to door independent expenditure stuff and really force that issue in the center of, of some elections. The one in um, North Carolina would tell us mm-hmm. I had a female opponent um, Tom Cotton in Arkansas, and then in um, Louisiana with Bill Cassidy running against Mary Landrieu, who had always gotten away with being pro-abortion. Nobody ever said who she was on this. So taking those big statewide elections, putting a really reasonable law at the mm-hmm. center of it uh, is really, I think, uh, where how we went from what you just described, a dull moment to a presidential moment like, the, like mm-hmm. President Trump. Well, you mentioned something that I, I really wanted to ask you about, because the way that the SBA list went after the Democrats, the pro-life Democrats, uh, pretty much an extinct species at this point, uh, who voted for Obamacare, uh, despite the fact that they had originally been holding out for a, a direct prohibition on abortion funding. And if I remember the, the numbers correctly, 12 of the 19 were defeated within four within four years. And to what extent was that paradigm shift? Like, because pro-lifers have always been kind of stuck, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world, because there's always like the conservative party saying, you know, where else are you going to go, right? You're not going to vote for the pro-abortion <laughs> radicals. And so uh, the pro-lifers kind of provided all carrot, no stick, right? Well, wh- like who else are we going to vote for? And then when you prove that you had a stick uh, and that, you know, you, well, you know, yes, we can vote for you and get you into office, but we can also take you out of office. To what extent did, was that a paradigm shift for how you guys functioned in Washington? in D.C.? I think it's incredibly astute how you described that because it had to come within. There wasn't mm-hmm. another place. The rea- they were right. There was really no other place to go. Democrat, Ross Perot, I mean, wh- who are we going to vote for? Who are we going to put our pro-life party? I mean, that, those types of things would crop up and be like, no. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, healing the scar within was the only way to do it. And, and, um, and, and one thing that... Um, that I think most people didn't see, but they did see it at the RNC, was the getting involved in the chairman's race, the chairman of the RNC's race, and um, af- right after Romney, right after that election, when everybody right. had their autopsies about why we lost and everything. Getting involved in that next chairman's race was really important. And, and nobody ever cares about this. They think like, who cares? Let them all do their thing. Mm-hmm. But it did matter and because we had a litmus test. We, we decided, and who were we, to, to, to uh, ascribe a litmus test to everyone who was running as chairman that year. People who had formerly been advocating for pro-choice, sort of like in the secret dark corners and places, were like, okay, what's your position? Because the RNC, there are hundreds and hundreds of committee members. They're crazy pro-life like it's a really conservative group of people they can't mm-hmm. get away with seeming pro-choice so um so that was really important and really important at a time where everything else was moving our way like winning elections where we were proud of the 20-week bill and they, and everybody saw that um so Oh my gosh, I, I lost sight of your question. Yeah, no, it was just it was just talking about the 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 paradigm shift and taking oh, people out. Yeah, that's right. The paradigm shift, right? 
happened, you know, yes, nowhere else to go. So let's heal the family within. Um, the family got stronger. They say, holy cow, we can actually win when we hold on to a reasonable position according to what everybody thinks is reasonable. So let's go ahead and express that. If Dole had gotten that right, mm-hmm. um, and he didn't, and if he actually followed the polls, which were right in front of him. Yep. Yep. Um, the Democrats had them. Yeah, Democrats had them. Republicans didn't even poll. The Republicans didn't poll because they were afraid of what they were going to find. Um, who knows? History could have been very different, but thank God we're in a different place now. So what does it say? One of the things that's 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 uh, very fascinating about the Republican leadership is that not all of the really high-profile people are fully pro-life, like Mitch McConnell, for example, like Lindsey Graham, for example. And yet, Mitch McConnell has been one of the pro-life movement's staunchest allies. I know he spoke at the SBA list gala. Um, I like while they were still rioting after Kavanaugh's confirmation, he was back in the Senate confirming judges while. While while they were rioting, and same thing with you're not mess with him. You just no. don't mess with him. That's what that lesson is. Yeah. And then same thing with with Lindsey Graham, who is not a hundred percent pro life the way you and I would, but is very articulate on 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 twenty the twenty week ban on on late term abortion, and so people that wouldn't be exactly the same way as us are coming out strongly on the issue and are being allies of the pro life movement in real tangible and valuable ways. Is that just because of the work that that you guys have been doing in D.C. for a couple of decades, uh, or, or do they really see you as as an ally that's necessary? Um, well, there's God's grace. I never want to forget that part. And also they do see us as a really important ally. Um, and we've got their back, uh, on, on this when they, when they go out there, I have to say though, that I'm, I'm still beating this drum on evolving converts because I think that a lot of the guys, especially the old school guys, um, weren't ever necessarily in an environment where their own uh, vision of this was allowed to flourish or wasn't encouraged to flourish. It's their own whatever. It's for whatever reason, there wasn't a pro-life moment and we're living mm-hmm. in a pro-life moment. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that Lindsey Graham, I've, I've heard him. I, I mean, I've, I've been with him. I've heard, I really think it's in his heart. I, mm-hmm. I don't know why well he you know he sponsored a bill long ago on the born alive infants protection act and you could say it's because he's from south carolina and they really want to see that but his his i think it's real with him i really do and i think but what but that he certainly did not seem like that a decade ago and same for and same for mcconnell um but you know and, and mcconnell i mean we could not have done this there's no chance that we would have been able to do this do this meaning basically transform the federal judiciary and and totally remake the Supreme Court were it not for him. And so mm-hmm. I, I actually, I, kinda, I do think it's real for him, but I think the, his most important skill is, um, I think he has conviction, but is to be that immovable object. Mm-hmm. You will not mess with me. I am doing this. Um, I'm going to consult with a couple people that I, that I have to just to get the job done. There's no, been nobody like him. And I think that previous to now, um, people have made a profession out of disliking him and selling the dislike of him, you know, in the in the movement to a certain extent. And I, I think now he's got to be lauded. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, yeah. the track record is pretty indisputable. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the, the Supreme Court, um, and I, I suspected this would happen, but it's always a little bit jarring to hear it during the, the presidential debate last night, um, of which the less said, the better, probably. Oh, God. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Biden refused but <laughs> Biden refused to say that he wouldn't pack the court and Kamala Harris uh, confirmed again this morning and I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't abortion is the most important issue for the Democrats uh, which is why even though he wouldn't attack Amy Coney Barrett personally Roe came up within the first 10 minutes of the debate um, and, and, and to be really really blunt people who are willing to justify tearing a baby apart in the womb cannot be trusted not to butcher norms when they get the opportunity to. So do you, what do you think the chances of the Democrats packing the court? How, how, how worried is the pro-life movement that we could actually win the game by the rules laid out for decades and then they could just change the rules of the game overnight? Well, first of all, there, it's not a law. It's just a custom. They can change it. They'll make that argument. No big deal. Um, it's funny. I've been having this argument all day with different people. Um, I have never been the conspiracy theory person. I don't because I, I tend to think that, you know, the, the common conviction will rise to the surface and often it keeps people from doing terrible things. In this case, because think of the people you saw in the Kavanaugh hearing, the people that mm-hmm. used the people after the president's election screaming the guttural screams. Um, no, they aren't the leaders of the Democratic Party, but they're close, you know. Mm-hmm. And the ends in this case, uh, they believe with strong conviction that, uh, that it is the end of women's uh, livelihoods that mm-hmm. the end, and, and that, um, and if they get in this situation, they will insist, Kamala Harris will certainly insist uh, that, that this happened. And all it takes is one thing that, um, that we should have done in my opinion before, but, uh, but change a legislative filibuster, then you get to vote on what the rules are. Um, with a, just a majority vote, not a two-thirds majority, you first, yes, you first expand the number of Supreme Court justices that sit on the court by two, and then you expand the number of senators to make sure that you, you have that forever, and um, and that you have the majority forever, so you get right. Puerto Rico and you get D.C., right? Mm-hmm. So I've never been a conspiracy theorist, but I think in the way you just said, the ends will justify the means, and they won't, they won't, I don't know why they wouldn't, to tell you the truth. Right, right. Given the, given the the way they describe the consequences, and they really mm-hmm. believe it. They're not messing around. They actually believe it. Yeah, no, when they describe what America would be like, it sounds like Teddy Kennedy's attack on Robert Bork, right? The the America they paint is very dark. <laughs> yeah. So when you right. when you look at the Senate races, because the Senate in some ways is 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 just absolutely essential. Because regardless of how this presidential election goes, if, if you hold the Senate, you can hold back most of the craziness. What are the chances, in your view, of the Republicans hang on to the Senate? And and should should we be really worried, or are you reasonably confident that we'll hang on to the Senate? I'm really worried. I mean, it's it does change week to week, but the the polls are we're not up in any poll. Except right. for South Carolina, um, I mean um, Georgia, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it, it is so close. It's one of those times where it could go just either way, and you know we didn't see the land. We we don't see landslides coming. Polls don't account for them. Right. There's stuff that we don't see going on in the hearts and minds and souls of people. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it is an a, a, a overwhelming uh, sweep, it. Um, we only we can't lose, we can only lose three seats, mm-hmm. you know, and and we're on defense this time. More, right. more of our guys are up and girls are up, women, <laughs> than they um, than than last time around. So I am very worried about that. So you lose the Senate with our. I mean, I, the odds of our 
overtaking the house if we lose those two other branches or close to zero. I don't know who would give us odds for taking over the house and being a bulwark there again. I think it's really a concern, really, you know, and I, I'm not a worrier. I'm a like, go fight and make sure it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But we have to fight because I think it, it is a real possibility that we lose it all. So describe the stakes then for those listening. Um, from the pro-life perspective, you guys run the most influential pro-life organization in Washington, D.C. You're involved on the ground in all these races. You're talking to all these politicians. What are the stakes if, if, if we end up losing both the Senate and the presidency? I think it's generational. I think it is not just a handful of years until we get a presidency or a Senate or a House back. I think even if we did, if we lose this and we regain the presidency or one of those branches in the future, so much will have, so much damage will have been done. It'd be very difficult to bring it back. I'm not saying never could, but think about it. It's the, it's the, the, the court is, um, uh, the court will be better temporarily, could be back to sort of net zero again, basically backtracking a couple of justices and then we and then we don't make any we have two, over 2000 children dying every day now we'll have very little hope that that would that would change ever i think right. there are a lot of people who feel like well it's another election and we'll regain it later i think presumes upon the future and future uh, does not get better if we when we lose so one of the things that a lot of people are thinking and and where a lot of cynicism comes in is when gorsuch ruled on bostock and there was this sudden moment where people are like, you've got to be kidding me. It's Sandra Day O'Connor. It's Anthony That's Kennedy, right? right? Like, we're, we're here all over again. You know, the Republicans, Republican nominees have dominated the court for decades. They've been appointed by pro-life presidents. So what good does it do us anyway? And so how confident are you that if there was a 6-3 Republican split, that Roe would actually be overturned? Or do you think that what they could do is hollow out Roe enough to give to give the the states more leeway and thus continue to chew the abortion rate down? And when people say, well, just chew the abortion rate down, no, we're talking about babies. So this is a huge deal. I couldn't say it any better than you. I think the latter. I think that it's likely a two-step, at least, process. Um, probably not. We have this fantastic majority, but there, there has to be a case. And what will they listen to? Um, I, we don't know, but I think I've always thought that it would be a, a erosion that kind of disfigured Roe in a good way <laughs> that made um, that allowed more um, babies to be saved through legislation that could be upheld on new new permutations without. But we do have to eventually overturn Roe if it's a two step or a three step, because right now the viability standard, if, if you if you knock out the viability standard, um, then you can go before. <clears throat> you know, 21 weeks. Right. And if you go before 21 weeks, that's when you really start saving, saving lives. Right. And that's what the 20 week bill would be. Uh, but say, if, say a eugenics ban, uh, you know, disabilities, ethnicity, gender of uh, coming from Indiana and Kentucky and some other places. Um, and, and, and Justice Thomas has said that's a case of, of first impression, a unique case that the court mm-hmm. should eventually mm-hmm. look at. That is a big deal. Right. That means it's attached to who you are as a human being, not your point of gestation. You know, it goes way, it's not about gestation then, it's about, it's about that your, you know, your, your, your characteristics can't be um, uh, a reason that you are, are killed. So that says a lot about where we might go. 
Now, when you look at the temperature in the country right now, um, you, you, there's a lot of talk about polarization. There's a lot of talk about the chasm between the two Americas and things like that. And then there's a lot of voices that are, are begging for common ground, but can't quite explain to us where we're supposed to find that. So, for example, uh, David French is one of those those voices who will say, well, we need to come together. But the the, the difficulty with, with, with that is that these issues now are issues we can't come together on. Um, right. Like all, it, it is, I think, uh, very significant that it's abortion. Uh, fundamentally, it's abortion that's sort of tearing at the, the seams of the Republic right now, because it's uh-huh. it's an area where we don't have any common ground. We can't just say, no, go ahead and kill those babies. But we would really like to protect these ones, if you don't mind. Um, uh-huh. And so what happens if if the 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 sort of slight majority of, of blue states starts to impose their views on all the red states, especially those with with trigger? laws and trigger bans, those with, you know, decades worth of pro-life, pro-life legislation that's been piling up. They've been getting rid of their clinics because the backlash, I'm wondering what you think would take place if, say, Biden gets in, passes the Equality Act, stacks the court and basically wipes out a couple of decades worth of pro-life legislation. How does how does then these the pro-life majority in all these states respond to that when you've taken away all of the tools they have to save lives? Yeah, so on one hand, we're hearing, we just need to back off of politics and just let's get to some common ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that space restricts to about 5% common ground. When Democrats take over, right, the Equality Act, basically the old Freedom of Choice Act that enshrines Roe versus Wade into the law because they can. There's no, no reason that they can't do that. It's already going to be supported by the court. So as long as the court is okay with it, legislatures can do it. You can't basically you what uh, the Cuomo approach is applied to the entire country. Mm-hmm. You cannot legislate uh, against um, failing to care. That's a lot of negatives. <laughs> you you must uh, allow a baby uh, to to die if if abortion was the intention going into that going into that act. As long as the you know the parents are considering and thinking so yeah taking away all of our founder given tools to actually come up with consensus that's a whole point of those of of the constitution and the democratic process that is a consensus building nation that's who we are so say we can't do that anymore and all you can do is uh do something beautiful we can all talk about the common ground of serving women Mm-hmm. And helping them make the right, uh, make, make decisions that are beautiful for themselves and beautiful for their children. And yet we're living in a culture that says, why would you even do that? That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the law, you know, who really cares? So I think the, the David French, um, and it's not just him, but mm-hmm. many other taking the position that, that politics and elections and laws basically don't matter, odd coming from a lawyer, in, in terms of stopping this, and that it doesn't really matter, and that eventually we'll be okay, we'll bring it back to this. It's just too convenient. I know I understand hatred of this president for, for, you know, all the reasons that they do. But separating hatred from the president for, from love of the Constitution has to happen. Otherwise, there's very little common ground left. Nobody's doing the common ground now. Like, you know what I mean? What's keeping, what's keeping people who don't want to be involved, who don't think politics is important, from, from the common ground conversations now and helping, helping yeah. people prevent, uh, helping prevent abortions through other means? One for too long, the the common ground approach has been um, well, we we like essentially accept their premises. Right, a reasonable Republican is one who acts like a Democrat. That's that's sort of the way it ends up working. I can't go there. I can't go there, but we'll go where you are. 
Yeah, exactly. Like common ground is when you move my way, essentially is the way is the way the left thinks, but they're now so far out in left field that it's hard to know what to do with. So they have everything to lose. I mean, it's like say, say we had a, a, a completely pro-life nation mm-hmm. and they were coming to us to say, look, we really want some common ground because we see polls that say that um, that people want to preserve abortion, you know, up to 14 weeks. We'd say no, let's talk about a different common ground. We're not going there. <laughs> so, of course, we're, we're correct in, in trying to preserve the rights of all people, mo- moms and kids. But they have everything to lose, and we have everything to gain. So a final question then is, could you recount one interaction um, with the president over the past four years uh, that would really encourage pro-life listeners as to what his convictions actually are. Because especially, I'll be blunt, after after watching the the, the train wreck uh, last night, a lot of people are like, um, I, okay, he, I know he's my guy in some ways, but really, like, this is the person who's passionate about abortion, and you're one of a handful of, of pro-life people who have actually spoken with him on the issue. So is there any anything you could share with us that would encourage people? You know, I think my favorite thing, because it includes all the ingredients, are right before the State of the Union message, and I, I describe this in the book a little bit, yeah. um, but right before the, not this previous one, but before that, two State of the Unions uh, before, um, he invited a handful of us uh, to come to the, uh, right outside of a lot of us, to talk about with him and the Vice President and the, um, Kellyanne, all the people that you know, uh, Chief of Staff, about, about the State of the Union message the next night. And it was just a couple of, of people who, uh, I was the only solely pro-life issue person. It was just all the issues that he was going to be talking about in the State of the Union. He wanted people to give their thoughts. And he, and it was right after the governor of Virginia had uh, been recorded saying he wouldn't, wouldn't save a life, that, uh, that a baby who'd been born alive wouldn't give it equal treatment. They would right, Ralph Northam. And, um, and he, um, so we were talking to the vice president and a bunch of other people and talking about what's in the speech. And then he bursts in, the president does from the Oval Office. And he's like, and, and the, the first thing out of his mouth is, can you believe what that governor from Virginia is doing? It's outrageous. And he's looking around, like looking for responsiveness and, and we're like, yes, it is. <laughs> and um, he said, can you believe that he would allow that, you know, the baby to just die there sitting on the table. It's just, it's crazy. And they, and then you go into more like, and then there will allow a baby to be, you know, pulled limb from limb, like right just before that. It was like he, he had seen into the heart of darkness and came out um, fighting. And he said, mm-hmm. I think I need to talk about this tomorrow night in the State of the Union message. And, um, and of course, we were, there were a lot of other issues, like sitting there in the room and people wanting to talk about it. But he really dominated on that. And it, it was encouraging because he sees what we see, but also it was, from, it was on a different level. It was, he was horrified and he wanted to fight. Mm. Well, Marjorie, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you coming on to talk about all this. It was really fun. I've, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. That was my interview with Marjorie Dannenfelser of the SBA list talking about what's at stake in the November election, how the pro-life movement has changed over the years and how the Republican Party became a pro-life party. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe to our podcast. You can check out past episodes over at LifeSiteNews.com. Just click on the podcast tab and you'll find other episodes there. Next week, we're going to be talking to Rod Dreher of the American Conservative about his new book, Live Not By 
by Lies, a Christian manual for dissidents. And so I'm really looking forward to that conversation as well. If you want to check out any other news on life and family issues, head over to LifeSiteNews.com and take a look at all the news and commentary there. Thanks again for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.